invite you once again to open your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Matthew chapter 6. If you didn't bring a Bible with you and you don't own a cell phone, um, that can, you can download an app there from any number of companies. Uh, there probably is one or have been put back in, in the pews in front of you, underneath the, the seat in front of you. Uh, you should be able to find a Bible there. Uh, or at the very least, hear God's Word as we, as we come to it this morning. Uh, we come today to our, our final uh, um, message in the series on the Lord's Prayer that we've been looking at throughout the course of this summer. It has been uh, a tremendous blessing to me to study and to prepare for these messages, and I've been particularly thankful that uh, the expressions from the congregation that uh, it has also been an encouragement to you. And so our, our prayer is this last one, which in one sense may be the, the least fun of these, uh, would be also an encouragement to us that we may be uh, shaped and blessed to be a blessing both to the Lord and to the people who are around us. Our passage is focused this morning will be uh, Matthew 6, verse 13. But as we've been doing for the sake of context, we'll begin our reading in Matthew 6, verse 5. Hear the word of our God. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this word, we pray that you would speak to us in accordance with your promise, that your word, uh, which continues to speak, uh, would, uh, would inform us, your spirit uh, would enable us to understand and more than understand what the premises are. Uh, your spirit would enlighten us as to our need and your promise that the word would become rich as nourishment to our souls, that the word would not merely inform us, but that it would form us as individuals after the image of Christ and as a church, which is the body of Christ, that you are building up, knitting together for your glory and for the good of this world. So Lord, we pray that today as we consider this word, you would shape us, that you would mold us, and you would enable us to live, to live wisely, and to flourish in this world that is around us. We may praise you, that others may praise you, as a result of the work that you are doing in us. Lord, to you be all praise and glory, not only in the church, but throughout the world. For you are worthy. We pray this in all things in the incomparable name of Christ Jesus, our Redeemer King. The name of Desmond Doss became widely recognized a few years ago when uh, the, the movie Hacksaw Ridge uh, came out. It was a biopic film, uh, was uh, high, many, received many, many awards, and it 
tells the story of Desmond Doss, who, Virginia native, was a conscientious objector, although he was a medic in the U.S. Army during World War II. Despite being a conscientious objector, he served, although his status and his ideals caused a little bit of conflict, uh, to say mildly, uh, with many of his other soldiers. And yet, because of his character and because of his bravery, he was, the attitudes changed and he was uh, awarded uh, the Medal of Honor because at a time when his fellow soldiers had engaged in the Battle of Hacksaw Ridge in Okinawa and had found themselves under heavy fire, many of them laid uh, wounded and, and, and laying on, on the battlefield while the commanders told uh, everybody who was able to, to to run for the cliff and get back off of that hill. Only less than one-third were able to do that. Uh, Doss, who himself would not carry a weapon, single-handedly went and saved over 75 of his fellow soldiers, carrying them to safety. And so therefore, the acclaim he received seems to be, seems to be due. Far less known is the story of another World War II medic, a man named Private William McGee, who only two months earlier had made his own ultimate sacrifice on behalf of fellow soldiers. Here's the story. The 30th, 304th Infantry Regiment, the 76th Infantry Division, prepared to capture a German town. They crossed a river by boat at night, but as they reached the shore, the advancing soldiers discovered that the retreating German forces had mined the area. As the first wave pushed forward, two men were grievously injured by enemy anti-personnel mines. Caught in a minefield between a river and an enemy-occupied town, they were left there bleeding, in pain, and trapped. Despite the risk, McGee went forward alone to get them. After saving the first man, McGee went back for the second. Stepping on a mine, McGee himself was mortally wounded. But he demanded that his fellow soldiers not come to his aid, knowing that their attempts to reach him would result in the same fate. McGee's decision undoubtedly saved lives, even as it cost him his own. In recognition of his selfless sacrifice, McGee was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest award for valor, on February 26, 1946. McGee's Medal of Honor citation read, entirely on his own initiative, Private McGee entered the minefield, brought out one of the injured to comparative safety, and had returned to rescue the second victim when he stepped on a mine and was severely wounded in the resulting explosion. Although suffering intensely and bleeding profusely, he shouted orders that none of his comrades was to risk his life by entering uh, uh, the death sown field to render first aid that might have saved his life. In making the supreme sacrifice, Private McGee demonstrated a concern for the well-being of his fellow soldiers that transcended all considerations for his own safety and a gallantry in keeping with the highest traditions of military service. You may wonder why I'm sharing these stories, and one aspect is they are inspiring and they are worthy to be heard. Uh, but the partic particular reason that I share them this morning I is this, something that I I'd read that J.I. Packer had written. And he says this, life is a spiritual minefield. Bible commentator Frederick Dale Brunner kind of picks up on that same theme in his commentary on Matthew when he says this, the picture at the beginning of this sixth petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The picture at the beginning of 
this sixth petition is of people walking through something of a minefield. We pray that we would not be led into a mine of overwhelming temptations. That's what this petition is. And so as we consider this sixth petition, you know, some consider this to be two distinct petitions, but we're going to take them together as, as many uh, commonly uh, recognize, consider them to be one. We're going to look at really two predominant questions this morning, although we're going to answer a few questions, but two predominant questions. The first is, what are the dangers that we face if life is a spiritual minefield? And second, why do we need to pray for deliverance? Again, the two parts of the petition is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so what are the dangers that we face, and what, uh, what are, uh, why do we need deliverance? And we'll begin with the, the first question, which, what are the dangers that we face in this life? And I think that from this text, we get a, a broad category. We face temptation and we face evil. I think better way of looking at this as we see these two petitions as one is it's the temptation to evil. Uh, because it's important for us to recognize this. Temptation itself is essentially neutral. Every one of us faces temptations. It's natural in life. There's things that we uh, desire. There's things that we, we know about. Uh, and so thoughts come to our mind, and then we have a choice to make. Do we pursue this, or do we ignore this? And some of the temptations, some of the things that come to mind would be good. Some of the things are things that we are to avoid, but temptations themselves are neutral. It's the response that we give to temptations uh, that becomes problematic for us. We, we know the temptations themselves are neutral because Jesus himself was tempted. One of the very first things that we read about in the Gospels is how Jesus, after he was baptized and after it was recognized that he had come uh, and that the, uh, the, the kingdom of God was at hand, is he went out into the wilderness where the enemy had tempted Jesus. The difference between his temptation and many of our temptations is that Jesus, regardless of the temptation, he was without sin. He chose wisely at all times. But if temptation itself was a sin, then Jesus would have sinned by the very fact that he was tempted. Now, in one sense, that could be a trivial piece of knowledge, but it's not, because there are many, many people, many that I've spoken with in terms of counseling, uh, many people that, that I am aware of, who have active consciences. They want to do what's right. They want to do what's good. Perhaps because of the pain of past failures, they are particularly sensitive to the temptations that they feel, the temptations that they face. And as a result of that, they feel the guilt of simply facing temptation. And some of you may be there. And if you are there, if you are one who, because of mere temptation, feels guilty, feels that somehow you are distant and alienated from God, it's important that you hear this. Temptation itself is not a problem. It is common, even to Jesus. You are not guilty because of temptation. The issue for us all is what we do in the face of temptations. Now, Martin Luther, as he's writing on the Lord's Prayer, he, he tells us that there are essentially three sources of temptation or three landmines that we need to be aware of. The devil, the world, and the flesh. So we begin with the, the devil, or, or in particular Satan, and including his minions. What he has in mind is spiritual warfare that is going on in realms that we are not necessarily able to see. Scripture speaks of it in a number of places. We think of perhaps uh, this verse, or at least came to, to my mind, and in, in 1 Peter 5.8, um, Peter teaching what, what Jesus had taught him, be alert and sober of mind. 
Your enemy, the devil, prowls around, around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In other words, what Peter is saying, and the scripture teaches us, is that no matter how strange and bizarre and primitive it may seem that there is some devil out there, there is some demon, some agent that is working to, uh, work, working to uh, make us our lives miserable, to tempt us into, uh, into evil. Scripture, nevertheless, is quite clear. There is such a being that is out there who is an enemy. Uh, to all, to all of humanity, and particularly perhaps to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And the image that Peter's using here is that he's like a, a lion. He's looking around for opportunities. In other words, when he sees and is aware of temptations that people may face, he comes and perhaps tries to highlight, augment, sharpen those temptations, drawing us so that we would become uh, like a uh, pray to a lion, isolated from others, not sure of ourselves, unable to stand. He's there, ready to pr- uh, to pounce, to attack, and destroy. And Peter's picking up on a theme that comes from the very beginning of Genesis. In Genesis 4, uh, we see God speaking uh, with Cain in, in a picture that is important for all of us to, to remember and, and to be aware of. And here's, here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It's very similar imagery. And, and the context of this is that Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve, um, were working and each uh, relating to God in, in their own way. Abel giving the first fruits of the best of what he had, everything he lived, chief end, glorifying and honoring and delighting in God. And Abel checking the box, saying, okay, there is a God, and let's appease him, let's acknowledge him, let's give him, you know, something, and but keeping the best for himself. And his attitude toward God made him feel distant from God, that he, he saw the favor that God poured out on the one who delighted in, in God. And so therefore he was perturbed. He was the, he was the ugly stepchild in a, in a sense because, he, at least as the way that he felt, because he didn't feel like he really belonged. He was alienated. And the Lord kind of calls him on his attitude and says, you know, what, what's wrong with your attitude? And then don't you recognize if, if you do what is right, in other words, regardless of what you're facing, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do what's right, here's the problem. See, every one of us faces temptation, temptation to sin. Sin is like that roaring lion. And so he's, he's moving away from the person, personification, uh, but the same imagery. Sin is there. It's a lion, and it wants to devour you. You need to be aware of that. You need to be aware that there's the spiritual warfare that is out there in the world and the ultimate intent. Because if you're not aware, you become prey. But if you are aware, you have the opportunity to do the right thing. And what he says here to, uh, to Cain is, master it, conquer it, put that sin to death. And so we see through the Scripture, Old Testament and New, that there is this spiritual warfare that's going on. There is an enemy. There is a, a being who desires to devour us, no matter how strange that may seem to our modern ears. 
I appreciate the what uh, pastor, professor, and author Ian Duguid wrote for an article for Core Christianity. He says this, almost everyone agrees that some things are not merely tragic, but genuinely evil. But many find the idea of a cosmic being whom we can't see, feel, or touch, and who promotes evil in the world is unthinkable. Of course, the, the devil whom they don't believe is, in their minds, often not the biblical figure, but rather a ridiculous image with hooves and horns, and who could seriously believe in that creature? It is convenient for the devil when people don't believe in his existence then he can pursue his nefarious schemes unsuspected and undetected. And it's that last line I think is particularly important. When we might be prone, because it seems foolish in this modern world, to deny the reality of a particular enemy who desires to devour and to lead us away from God and into evil, it is that very denial, it is that very ignoring that actually serves his purposes because we're not aware, we're not considering. And therefore, if we're not considering, we're not aware, we're not going to be able to overcome and then he can pursue his nefarious schemes on unsuspecting because he's undetected. We need to recognize that spiritual warfare is a reality. There are some who kind of overemphasize this, even in a weird way, to my Presbyterian sensibilities. But it is at least an equal mistake to ignore it, to pretend that it doesn't exist while some overemphasize. There's an equal danger in overlooking. For those of you who are interested in this subject, because we're not going to uh, deal with it in great depth, there's uh, those of you who are readers, I'll just make two quick uh, recommendations for you. One would be C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, which I always found very difficult to read. I can only read it in short segments because, you know, which I, I always assume I must be spiritually sensitive because it makes me tired to try to think like the devil. Uh, but at least it, um, it um, better than it makes sense to me. But anyway, that's, uh, but at the beginning, you're thinking, fictional as it is, it begins you thinking in terms of just what it means for an, an entity, not only Satan, but then his minions, the demons who are working actively contrary to the purposes of God. And the second one is a very old book, but I have only read it relatively recently over the course of this summer. Uh, and it's uh, by a, a Puritan named Thomas Brooks, and the book is called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And I highly, highly recommend that. In fact, even if you don't do anything else, just read the table of contents and you will be spiritually blessed if you want to do like a quick reading. Uh, anyway, I'm sure I will be quoting um, annoyingly extensively from that in the days ahead, so you'll hear about it again. But one of the landmines that we need to be aware of is that there is a spiritual warfare. There is one who is out to devour, and we need to be aware of that in, in this world because it is a danger to our souls and to our lives. The second one, Luther says, is the world, which I don't know about you, but for a long time, it, it just seemed very bizarre to me. I mean, even from a biblical standpoint, because last I checked, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? I mean, so, so the world is the problem. How can this possibly be? I remember reading an author who was writing about his own perplexity in that, saying in his childhood he had his problem because the church he grew up in would open up the worship service and sing, this is my father's world. And then later in the service, they would sing, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And he said, I began to wonder, if this is my father's world, then why isn't this my home? I, you know, it's just kind of, I don't know if that's ever crossed your mind, but, you know, 
the wisdom of 12-year-olds sometimes speaks in, in great volumes, although he was over 12 when he wrote the article. But we hear this about the, the dangers of the world, and yet we also see the scripture talks affirming about the beauty of what God has created. And we live in an area, we live in a world, you can go anywhere in the world, and you see incredible beauty. We see the way that God has, has blessed all sorts of things. We're blessed not only by the nature that is around us, but the relationships that we have. There are tremendous and incredible blessings that we experience in this world. So how can the world itself be a problem? I think it's one of the ways that we need to recognize how Scripture and the ancient languages use words in different ways. And when the Scripture is using the word world or talking about the concerns of the world, when we're told, do not be conformed to this world, it's not about the creation itself, but it's about the systems and the values of a world that is hostile to God. Listen how one author defines it, I think, uh, very simply and yet profoundly. Worldliness, which is essentially the love for the world. Worldliness is a love for this fallen world. It is loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. In other words, there's a system in this world because of the fall of those who do not know God, who, uh, who do not bow to God, whether they may acknowledge there's a God out there or they deny that there is even existence of a God. But there's a system that functions in this world, and each culture has their particular set of values. And those values, in some sense, may be good in some respects, or at least in, in their original capacities, but when they are used over against God or in, in place of God, they then become evil because they lead people away from the very thing, very person for whom we were created, and the very one who is our hope and our salvation. And so the world and the culture has these values that are set up that taken individually may not seem to be a big deal, but they create the system by which you are able to flourish and succeed in this world. And those systems are contrary to the values of the kingdom of God. We recognize in our own culture and in much of the world, it is strength, it is power, it is beauty, it is riches. Those who have the riches, they call the shots. Those who have the strength, they get what they want. Those who have the beauty, they can get people to do what they want for them. And when those things work together, it's not that there's anything wrong itself with riches or there's anything wrong with beauty or there's anything wrong with strength. God is the one who endows people with each and all of them. There are challenges that go with that, and when people feel self-sufficient because they have one or multiple of those things, then their sense of needing God is diminished. They can do whatever they want. In fact, there are many people, and there are systems throughout history that have developed where they just declared, well, if I have all these things, it's because God has blessed me with them, and so therefore I should be listened to. And so they don't depend upon God, but they move away from God. And when you move away from God, when you become unshackled from God, you become unshackled from His ways— then you're going to move into very dangerous waters. You're going to move toward destruction. And so when Luther is saying the world is something that we need to look out for, it is a world, it is a landmine. It's not to say that you shouldn't go out and enjoy the ocean. It's not to say you shouldn't enjoy and take and be awed when you go hiking in the mountains. It is the systems of a culture that is, in some cases, antithetical to God, in other cases, just ignoring God entirely, that can shipwreck 
our faith and destroy our souls. But the third one, Luther says, is one that hits closer to home, but we often overlook. Luther calls it the flesh, and it's not the fact that we have skin, but that's the, the biblical term, the, the Greek term, or the concept of our, our passions, our desires. If I was going to write it and rewrite Luther, uh, I would say the problem is self. And so many people focus on the other two, the problems of the environment, which is the world, the problems of the enemy, which is a, a spiritual warfare that's going on. And they get so focused and so preoccupied with those two landmines that they never look to the third one, which is the closest one to us, because it's with us wherever we are, where, uh, at any time uh, of day or night or during the week. And that is ourselves. One of the phrases that I teach couples to embrace when I do premarital counseling is this, both of them. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I've known them for a long time. It doesn't matter if I've just met them. But both of them need to come and adopt this phrase, I am the biggest problem in my marriage. And I do that to be consistent with what the Apostle Paul says when he says to Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying, worthy of all consideration. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And people get caught up in that and start debating, so was Paul saying he was the worst sinner of all? Well, he must have been thinking about when he was like Osama bin Laden, hunting down all the Christians to, to kill them, which was pretty bad. But he's not using past tense. He didn't say, I once was, but now you know, he's saying, I, I am. And what he's doing there, because he's also telling Timothy, you need to embrace this mindset. And the whole purpose of writing to Timothy was to entrust to the elders of the church a particular mindset, so they can entrust to the people in the congregation a particular mindset. He's saying, look, this is the mindset that should permeate the church. Every Christian should embrace this, is we remember the truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them, because Paul was very well aware. Every one of us is fallen and is broken, and our passions, therefore, can be distorted. Our emotions are deceiving, and at any time, we can look at something, and we can see it askew and make decisions that are contrary to what God would have us to do that would be beneficial for us and for the people who are around us. We are our worst enemies. A writer named Trevin Wax said this, Christians have a common misunderstanding of the nature of temptation. We often use the term fall to temptation as if one has absolutely no control of their situation and is swept away into temptation, like one falls in love. Christ did not command his disciples to pray that they would not fall into temptation, but they would not enter into temptation. And what he's reminding us there is because of the nature that each of us has, even when we are saved, even when we have been redeemed and God has been at work within us, we are still warped. We're still distorted. And none of us falls into sin. We jump. And we jump because there's a temptation at some point in line. In other words, here's an opportunity. Here's something that's presenting itself. That itself is neutral. And then when it's faced, we have an option. How are we going to deal with the situation? Some cases we should ignore it. Some cases we should run from it. And in some cases, it's appropriate to embrace. But when the options of running and uh, ignoring are the, are the proper choices, and then we begin to contemplate, and we think, and then we mull it over in our mind, and then we think hypothetically, and that gets appealing, and then we take another step, we take another step. The fact of the matter is, it doesn't just hit us, but we choose to sin. We don't just fall one day. It's not stumbling. It's a consequence of decisions that we make because of temptations and desires that are within every one of us. And, and so Luther is right when he says, look, the, the self, we need to be aware of ourselves as much as we need to be aware of the spiritual warfare of an enemy who is real and who's prowling to devour, and, and a world who has set uh, systems that are set against God. You, you see, the reality for many of us, particularly as Christians, when we think that we're running away from those other things, 
we're running away from the enemy, we're running away from the world. We're like an old 80s horror movie where, you know, the, the potential victim is running from the assailant and then runs into the house and then locks the door and then barricades the whole thing only to find out that the, the one who is going to be the perpetrator is in the house with them. And see, that's us. We can run from all these other things, but if we ignore the third landmine, which is our own self, our own desires, the way that we respond to temptations, we can still blow up our lives and destroy, hurt, maim, harm the lives of the people who are around us. So it's vitally important that we recognize that there are dangers in this world, and we are often potentially a danger to ourselves. And so Jesus instructs us, lead us not into temptation. Well, that itself raises another question, doesn't it? Does God tempt us? I don't know if you've ever asked that question or not, but many people do. A few generations ago, there was a, a prominent uh, theologian minister, had uh, a radio ministry and a writing ministry, and he would receive hundreds of thousands of letters every year from people in his audience. Many of them would tell about the difficulties they had either with biblical questions or their own spiritual lives. And he said on the basis of that experience, he, he wrote this. He said, no verse in the Bible puzzles more people than the petition in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. Is it not a shocking idea that God leads men into temptation, that we must beg him to stop doing it? Is that what this petition is saying? I mean, if you think about it, if, if that's what it is saying, that God leads into temptation, and God himself tempts, then how, how can we trust God? Even more than that, how would we possibly resist? Because whatever God decides to do, he, he does. He accomplishes his purpose. It's, you theologues, it's called the immutability of God. You can't put the mute button on him. Whatever he wants to do, he accomplishes. And so if what he's going to do is tempt somebody, then why would that person not fall? And it's a perplexing, perplexing question that people have, and it's rooted in this uh, phraseology of this prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ has told us to pray. We need to recognize what Scripture says very clearly about this subject. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, there was one that he did tempt or did lead into temptation. We'll get there in a moment. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, that whole landmine of the self thing. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. That's when we have the options of the temptation, and we begin thinking, and, and eventually we, we jump into that. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so James is very clear, the idea that God tempts us is, is, is not the reality of, uh, of our experience. God is himself good. He cannot be tempted by evil, and therefore he will not perpetrate evil. And trying to tempt people to sin, to tempt people away from him, he will not do. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, this is a passage that sometimes gets misused. 
we try to comfort people by saying, God will not give you anything more than you can handle. Well, the fact of the matter is we can't even handle life as it is. I mean, we are constantly faced with things that we can't handle, which is why God needed to rescue us and why we need his grace. But in particular here, he's saying as it pertains to temptation, like whatever temptations you face, you're not the only one that's facing it. It's common to everybody. Everyone faces temptation, and many people face the same temptation that you are facing. Understanding what James said, it's not God who is tempting you. But what God does is he makes sure that because of his grace, particularly in the lives of his people, whatever temptation you have, he has given you the ability to say no and to do the right thing. God gives you the out. He's not the one who is bringing temptation. And so the whole question of whether does God tempt, the scripture says overwhelmingly, clearly says, no, God is not the one who is tempting. He's made things good, and we may relate to things in the wrong way. That comes from our own desire. That comes from being having our, our, our minds conform to the, to the values and the systems of the world rather than to what God himself has said. We, but God gives us the ability to say no. And what we need to understand from this particular passage is this, is that the word that is used here for, uh, for uh, temptation uh, in, in the Greek is somewhat neutral and can be used either, and is used in different places in Scripture, either as temptations, as it is here, or testings, as it is in other places uh, in the word. And it is the context that determines whether it's considered the word is translated as temptation or whether it is testing. And temptations and testings are not the same thing, though in the midst of a testing, it may feel like it. Temptations themselves are things that would move us away from God, move us to entice us towards sin. Testings are circumstances, trials that every one of us faces in this life that actually are designed to strengthen us, to give us more confidence to see what God has already been doing in our lives so that we can trust that he is at work and he will continue to be at work until we reach the maturity that he has promised that we will all reach in Christ Jesus. And scripture speaks clearly to this as well. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so what James is saying here is that when we deal with trials, when we are tested, it's, it's not the same as a temptation, though it may feel like that, but it is a challenge. But the result of that challenge is that our faith would be strengthened. It's like a coach who's pushing his or her players beyond what they think they can do so that they can get to a new level. God does that in our lives constantly because otherwise we wouldn't grow. We would hit the plateau. We would hit the, hit the wall and, and, and never grow. And, and so we're told rejoice, although quite frankly, I don't like the testings of the trials when they come any more than I like the pop quizzes when I was in school, you know? Wow, a pop quiz. I didn't even, you know, I mean, you know, some of you probably did like that. I'm just saying I didn't like that stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it might have been an opportunity. You know, often it showed my ignorance, not my, uh, my achievement. It showed where I needed to grow. Um, and so I should be thankful for that. And it's not just James. Peter says in a very uh, familiar passage, blessed be the Lord, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, um, who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, testings. So that tested by genuine, so so that uh, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and so the same word is used at different uh, different times, and, and that God is at work and God puts things before us that are, are challenging. But God is never enticing us to reject Him. God is never enticing us to do what is contrary to what He is going to do. He presents, he orders our lives. He has given us the ability to say no to that which is wrong and yes to that which is right. And these circumstances that we face, they strengthen us in our lives. And so, though there are many dangers, landmines in this world, God himself is not one of them. God does not tempt, but he delivers us. And Jesus says, because of those dangers in this world, because there's temptations in this world, and even within you, and you need to pray, Lord, Deliver us. Lead, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from that which is evil, or specifically the, the evil, which then others put the word one afterwards, but there is a definite article there. But then that begs another question. Why do we need to be delivered? I mean, that's what we're praying. We're, Lord, deliver us. Why doesn't God just say, look, this is the right way. Here's the path out. Follow the map, and, you know, all will go well for you. The end of the rainbow, find a pot of gold. And I know there are people who teach, I'll say such garbage so that I don't get fired for the language I want to use about it, but I mean, anyway. Um, but Jesus is very clear here, saying, pray that the Lord will deliver you. And, and, and this is an important concept for us because what it does is it tells us and reminds us about our nature. It reminds us first and foremost that there are none of us who are spiritual super, superheroes. Though some of us may dream of being one, there is one spiritual superhero, and that's Jesus Christ Himself, who was also the only one that God led into temptation. He led him into the wilderness, and he was tempted. But the reason he was tempted is so that he would defeat the temptations in our, on our behalf, so that the very things that are destructive to us—temptations, death—he defeats them both. And he did so by taking on our likeness, coming into the world that he had created, but into our system, world that was against him, living perfectly and giving his life, dying, that we might be delivered. Because we are all, by our own nature, captives, slaves to sin. And when we use that, it's we might have this ideas as we... You know, we think about, you know, Harriet Tubman and others who were enslaved and, and the heroic and the bravery that they exercised in order to escape and to free others of escape. Uh, the problem is Jesus is the only Harriet Tubman. He is the only one that can deliver people that are in bondage to sin, slavery, and to, to saint, uh, and, and slavery to the enemy. And so Jesus became a one-man reconnaissance force where he came and he conquered and he set free those who trust in him. Because no matter how much we might dream of it, no matter how much we might appreciate the capacity of humanity, we can achieve incredible things, but we cannot make ourselves right with God and we cannot set ourselves free. I don't know if anybody ever escaped from Alcatraz or not. I know they made a movie. I just don't remember the ending of it. 
but I've seen pictures of it, and it seems like pretty much you're going to drown if you try to swim away from that place. We're not even going to get that far because we are incapable of righting ourselves, and so we needed a deliverer. God sent him in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we need to be set free. And we're praying for the deliverer, not because we need a new one, but we're praying that he would deliver us from the temptation and the evil both that is around us and that we are prone to perpetrate. Deliver us from that so that we can live free and we can be agents to be of encouragement to the people who are around us. And so Jesus says, pray like this, pray. that you would not be led into temptation, and that you'd be delivered from evil. How, how are we to respond? And I'm going to make this quick, um, finally, I guess, uh, depending on. At the end of Matthew, Matthew records Jesus' instructions to his disciples before his ascension. And this is what he says to them, and this is wisdom for us. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So how do we respond in this, as we pray this prayer, is when we watch. We watch for the landmines, not just those that are external to us, but the, the landmines within our own hearts and desires. We especially are on the lookout for those that are the most tempting to us. And so watching is aware of our own passions, desires, and, and wiring, because some things that may be temptations for me are not temptations for you. Some that might be a struggle for you are not really a problem for me. What is common is that we all have this. And what is common is that many people share our struggles, but they're not all the same. So we need to be aware, because it really makes no sense if we're to pray this, Lord, deliver us, if we're just going to jump right back into the slavery of sin in the first place. And so watch, be aware, and pray. Our Father is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You who has provided daily bread, you who has pardoned us from all of our sins, now we pray, protect us, lead us away from all temptation and evil. As John Newton wonderfully and poetically reminded us through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. It's grace that has brought us safe thus far. It's God's grace that will lead us home. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but draw us into your presence. Deliver us from evil, reminding us of the glory of your grace. Enable us to recognize that whatever gain is in the world is nothing as compared to your greatness. And so therefore, enable us to see it for what it is and that we would desire you above all, recognizing that in you we receive all things that bring us joy and sustain our lives. So that dependent upon you, we find joy in you. We stand in awe of you, and we delight in the fact that you love us, for you are our Father in heaven. To you be all glory, and your name be hallowed.